You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Oliver Bergman, it's good to see you. And you. Uh, welcome to the uh, Sophia audience, meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv, available on streaming video and audio podcast. I'm here with Oliver Berkman uh, of The Guardian, but not only The Guardian, am I correct? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm freelance, so I, I do more work for The Guardian than, than anyone else, but, uh, but various other things. And give, us, give, us the, give us the 30 second tour of Oliver Berkman's, uh, of Oliver Berkman. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm well. I'm British, as you can hear, but I live here in Brooklyn, in New York. Um, I've been working in some capacity for the Guardian pretty much my whole career um, on staff, and now and now freelance. I I write for their uh, long read section, and I write a short weekly column about um, psychology, a little bit of sort of philosophy, maybe. I don't know if it gets to count really. Um, ideas, that kind of stuff, and um, and I wrote a book about why positive thinking makes you miserable. Uh, and, um, and I write in various other places as well. That's more than 30 seconds. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the way, the way we encountered each other, I mean, partly was that I watched you on Blogging Heads with Robert, and um, I right. thought you were terrific. And also on Twitter, I, I don't even know how it came about, but either we follow some of the same people or, or something happened where we wound up sort of intersecting. And it does seem to me that you are philosophically interested. I mean, a lot of the, even the journalism you do seems to me that that layer of the questions that arise is of interest to you. Uh, is that I'm kind of totally, I'm totally interested. I yeah. don't like to, I feel like self-conscious because I don't think that I necessarily have the kind of discipline of thought that, that I associate with good philosophy, but I'm certainly totally interested in, in, trying to understand it and to sometimes to write about it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Did you have any philosophy education, uh, college or? Um, no, I did social science, political science in a, in a big mush, really. I guess, it, you know, some of it was, I, I did like a history of political thought, so I did like, studied Hobbes and Mill. That's sort of like what they call PPE in Britain? Uh, it was the um, Cambridge University equivalent that is not as celebrated as PPE. Yeah, SPS. It was called shouldn't then. You be, shouldn't you be in government then? Isn't like every person in government in Britain a PPE major? Yeah, it's true. No, I didn't go. Well, I didn't go. I didn't get it eaten, uh, which is what you need now to be in charge of ruining the United <laughs> Kingdom. Um, I went to I went to what you call a public school, which, despite going to a uh, posh university, but uh, is no, it yeah. less, Is it less painful for you to watch America fall apart than to watch Britain fall apart? I used to have this self-conscious thing going on about living in the states. People, I mean, I have family here now and everything, so I'm I'm here. <sighs> but but I used to feel like you know the worst politics got in the United States. It made me wonder if it was kind of really ridiculous to continue living here. And actually, that sort of goes away the more ridiculous. British politics gets because you just sort of equalize the level yeah. of doom and sense <laughs> of apocalypse. Yeah. So it's actually been very, uh, in that one small way, it's been, um, it's reestablished my peace of mind as an expert. How often do you go back? I'm, I'm assuming you still have a lot of family and friends in Britain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I used to go back all the time. A couple of years ago, uh, we had a son. So he's been uh, taking a lot of my time and, um, limiting the, the trips 
because you can't sort of travel quite as frequently or as easily. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm back there, you know, once or twice a year at minimum, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, today what we're going to talk about is uh, journalism, um, right. uh, the current state of it, um, and um, the impact of the internet, social media, um, uh, and and what the sort of the the the, if the ripple effects have been um, on our on our politics and maybe more broadly on our culture. Um, and so, one of the things I was maybe hoping you could do for us is. <laughs> Give us a sort of a journalism then and now. So sort of with the, with the dividing line being um, not just the moving of newspapers, magazines, et cetera, online um, into online versions, but, but even more importantly, the, the, the now sort of ubiquitous role played by, by social media in the, in the, in the, in the doing of journalism. Um, maybe you could give us just from from an insider's perspective uh, your your sense of the difference between journalism as it was then and journalism as it is now. Sure, I can try. Um, I my involvement in journalism does not predate the internet, but the internet was really just the beginning thing. You know, when I first started doing journalism, and it was um, the Guardian was really pioneering in having anything at all on the internet uh, for the uh, sort of public-facing way. I think, I mean, just for one minute, I feel like it makes sense to go back like centuries and uh, in my understanding of this and to, and to sort of just to sketch this idea that there's been over the whole history of the media um, a, a, a sort of slow inversion from a situation of uh, information scarcity to a situation of attention Scarcity. This is how it makes sense to me. I, I'm getting quite a bit of this from uh, Tim Wu, wrote a great book called The Attention Merchants that really talks through this, this whole history. And um, so, you know, way back in the 16th century or whatever, the first people who make money from news, they do it by having access to information that's valuable to the merchants of, you know, Renaissance Italy or whatever, and they, and they sell it on. And then... Everything since then, I think you can see is just a long, slow change such that information becomes so much easier to access, so much more plentiful. The distribution technologies make it easier and easier to get stuff to people's eyeballs. Um, and so gradually attention becomes scarce. And then starting in sort of the 19th century with the penny press, you get people figuring out that you can make money not by charging access to the information, but by charging a very low price for the information for the newspaper and then effectively selling the attention of readers to advertisers. Um, and so I think all that the internet and social media are in this respect is just a kind of crazy, like hyper warp speed expansion of that basic idea, right? So that it becomes more and more and more about um, seizing attention and so as to make money from the attention, uh, the information surplus is just totally out of control. There's no difficulty finding out for free basically what happened in the world. Everything is about finding ways to get people to come to your content. Um, and as we can go on to talk about, it turns out that when you get really scientific at mining people's attention in that way, it, it hugely privileges certain kinds of, of content and outrage and tribalism and certain kinds of uh, focus on 
identity and things like this, all just because it happens. It's just a it, social media is just this kind of ongoing social psychology experiment, right? With, with, with constant live feedback so that you can tailor what's being seen through Twitter or Facebook exactly to each, um, user. And so we just sort of various truths that I'm sure are timeless about like what kinds of things really compel people just get that, that logic comes to dominate everything more and more. So that's the really abstract thing. I guess if I can go on just a little bit, like what was happening when I started in journalism was you were just getting the sense that like anybody could publish through the internet and, and that there was no monopoly just because you controlled the printing presses of your newspaper that didn't give you like a, uh, a, 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 a goal, a role as a gatekeeper that couldn't possibly be, um, uh, challenged by, by anybody else. So that was just the sheer fact of, you know, a web page can cost millions and millions of dollars to put together well, or it can be something that anyone does in, in two seconds. Um, I think what then start then that sort of that leads to this arms race that changes the incentives on, on editors, that changes the kind of things that get covered because of just for the same reason, right? There's more and more and more and more of the competitive necessity to to uh, get your share of the scarce resource of uh, attention. And then I think, you know, I can talk more if you want about how social media does things. That's a broad sweep. Hold on, hold on a second. Um, let me just ask, let me push on this for a minute. It's not clear to me that it, it is certainly the case, as you described it, in one sense, that it's easier, it's just become easier to get information. You used to have to pay for the information, you know, it, 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 was, the, it, was, it was the access to the information that was, that was the sort of the, the prize, and then and, and you, sort of, you sort of made money off of the fact that you had the access. Certainly it's gotten easier um, to acquire information. Um, but I'm not sure I think it's become easier to acquire good information, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, and, and, so here's, an, here's an, it's something I sometimes tell my students um, who are overly enamored with Google and don't understand why I want them to go to the library, right? Um, and so what I sort of tell them, I said, look, in the library, let's say in the library there's, um, you know, uh, uh, 250,000 books, right? Um, every single one of them is there because a professor who is an expert in that area ordered the right. book. Ordered right. the book. Okay. Now, on the internet, imagine there are literally billions of books. Uh, bill, billions of, you know, bill, billions of books, let's just say, okay? Um, except, um, you have no idea who put them there. Mm -hmm. And given that you're not expert in the, the myriad things that you're going after, um, um, you have no way to tell which is a good one and which was a bad one. And I asked them, now, wh wh where do you think you're more likely more often to get good information? And, and the answer, obviously, is the library, right? Um, um, precisely because it's curated, right? And, and, and isn't just sort of, you know, a mathematical algorithm, right, that, 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 that directs you to. And so I guess I don't know that I think, 
so, so then when, when now it comes down to you saying, you know, what are we selling? We're selling, we're trying to sort of, you know, buy attention and all of that. It seems to me then, then ultimately then the way you get attention is that you're the one who has the good information, right? Um, um, the real information as opposed to the shit, right? So I guess I just don't know that I think that all of this openness has, has really made it easier to get good information. It's, it's just created more noise, right? I, I think it's, I would say it's both. I mean, I, information, the, the way I guess I'm using it here, yes, is not necessarily implies, does not necessarily imply truthful information. I mean, I suppose I'm using it in the sense that a page of totally fake news is, is information in some technical sense, just wrong information. I mean, a couple of things worth saying. The, obviously, the Google algorithm in your example, it's not, it's not, um, like, Nonsense. That that's that in the specific case of Google, it's reflecting um, numbers of other people who have chosen to point towards this information. So it's a kind of a democratic, uh, to the extent that it works. And I have something else to say about that. But it's a it's a it's a bottom up way of figuring out what is the reliable information. And Wikipedia works the same way, right? I think they've done studies to show that there are fewer errors in Wikipedia in a lasting way than there are in Encyclopedia. Britannica because um, you know you have such it's 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 a crowd based system of uh, weeding out error so it, it's not I don't think it's necessarily the case that a it's a different kind of selection because it's not somebody's particular trained uh, idiosyncratic individual mind making the making the choice but it's, but it's not I mean, Wikipedia is curated it's just sort of crowd curated right. The point about an open Google search is it's sort of not curated at all, right? I mean, I, I, the, way I noticed, the way I noticed this is just that the quality of my students' research has simply gone into the toilet. Right. They stopped using the library and started using Google, right? I mean, my understanding of the Google PageRank thing is that it's based on, no, I might be wrong now, but, it, but traditionally it's been based on, you know, a, a, a result comes up high in a Google search if lots and lots of other web pages point to that result. And so the implication is that, you know, uh, in the ideal case, uh, a web page isn't going to be linked to by thousands and thousands of other pages if it's not um, a reliable place to go. But the second point to get in here, I think, yeah, just, go ahead. Go ahead. is that um, this is like the, these are these, these are algorithms working ideally. I think what's actually happening in a much, in a broader sense and connects to some of the stuff I know we're both, concerned about is that um it is that a, a, a logic is being applied to filter results and information and it's doing it excellently and the system is working but the system is not optimizing for truth the system is optimizing for um attention so so in that sense you know there's no if you think about especially sort of twitter and facebook as just these kind of um content agnostic um attention maximizing machines um there's no particular reason why they should favor the truth over fake news there will be like a niche um or a niche as you americans sometimes say um that that's uh where where like there'll be a brand that it'll be worth being true because you'll get the people who really want truth but but you know fake news is the system is this system functioning properly in a sense right because yeah. it's because that's what that's what's grabbing some people's attention and yeah. every time you know 
people demand, including me, have Twitter that they, you know, do things radically differently and stop banning people who shouldn't be banned or stop or get rid of material that's that's absolutely appalling and shouldn't be on there. You're sort of asking them all to you're asking them to go against their business model, right? I mean, that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it, but it's um the logic is the logic is working really well. It's just not the logic that uh you know yeah one necessarily yeah. wants there to be Yeah, I mean because because look, I mean if I'm doing research, let's say, you know, on some political topic and, uh, you know, let's say I'm an undergraduate and I've got to go write a paper. Um, it just strikes me obvious that I'm much better off going to the University of Michigan stacks mm-hmm. or the Bodleian than I am doing a Google search. Um, um, uh, unless I already am quite expert in the subject, right, in which right. case then the ubiquity of information on the internet is an advantage, right? Right. Um, but I don't think that most people are in that position. I mean, and, and, and we're going to talk later. I mean, uh, part of this is this question of curation is going to come up later with respect to what I fear are, you know, is sort of a, a, a perception that, that at this point that all the news organs are essentially political, uh, political arms. I think that partly has to do with, with, with the, the, the loss of curation. Um, so you don't necessarily disagree that, for the average person, they're going to get better information out of the curated library than they're going to get out of Google searches. Correct? Uh, I mean, I, I think I agree. I, I don't think that's, I mean, uh, it depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? The reason I would in the position of that undergraduate want to go to the stacks is at least partly because uh, that's likely to set me apart these days from the people who are getting the exact same <laughs> you actually read books, right? <laughs> Google search. Well, you know, and I mean, actually, as a, even as a journalist, I find sometimes, you know, I'm not saying it's the greatest kind of investigative reporting. I'm not that kind of journalist, but but one of the times I can, one of the things I can do that's more interesting than than I might otherwise be doing is to show how some old something that's only in a book from years ago has something to say about about something happening today instead of just always going to the same uh, Google results. I just think that, I think Google remains a fairly good way of being pointed to broadly accurate information on a lot of topics. But you see that, you do see that corroding on very politicized things because then, you know, as I understand the way Google works, if enough people really, really love uh, a, a page that's full of absolute nonsense because it confirms their political views, then it will have a high Google ranking, even though it's it's not true. I don't know. I tend to think Google isn't the problem compared to the social media platforms, but some people might disagree with that. Although they're connected, right? Because now when you do Google searches, uh, Twitter, Twitter, and Facebook and other things come up also. I mean, you know, yeah, and so yeah. and given that there's so much activity on social media, yeah, they they come up high. I mean, if if I Google search anybody, person, or any issue, um. It's very likely that on the very first page, half the entries are going to be social media pages. Um, at least yeah, that's, right. what I, at least yeah. that's what I found. Sometimes I go for like several days at a time. I use software to ban myself from social media so I can get some work done. And then if you do a Google search in the course of work, you find that like the first 20 results you can't click because yeah. Yeah. you yeah. 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 Um, Now, the, specifically the impact on journalism of social media, um, um, how do you part? I see a number of different things that I think social media has done. Um, um, 
it seems to me, at least to a certain degree, to have um, uh, diminished the the, the capacity, uh, reporters' capacity for re- for investigative journalism. They're relying on, you know, I'm thinking some of these sort of high profile cases, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's the sort of the Covington boys, or it it, it seems to me that journalism that that, that 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 people now major news organs are regularly constructing stories on the basis of things that they're reading in Twitter feeds. That is a thing. I'm not sh- I went back and looked um, after we had a preliminary chat about the stuff. I went back and looked at the Covington and the Jesse Smollett stories in the Times. We can talk about those. I think a much more, uh, it's much more obvious in the case of a kind of a much less important kind of story, which is that you can always kind of, you can concoct a Twitter feud out of anything, right? If you want to say that celebrities caused uproar, um, there's a very bad kind of journalistic story that, that needs to die, really, which just involves <laughs> using search to find the sort of six people or, you know, possibly not even real people, bot accounts or something, who were, who expressed great anger at somebody, at a, something a celebrity said, and then say that they're sort of embroiled in a, in a, Twitter controversy, or even, you know, even more real, you know, every, every five weeks, Morrissey says something completely, utterly unacceptable. And increasingly, people are just like, yeah, it's Morrissey. But you'll find, you can make it into a live story by finding the, the five people on Twitter who don't realize that he just spouts an unending stream of objectionable things and, and turn it into a, and so you could, so yes, there's a sense in which you can sort of create events. Twitter. It's created a new Maybe kind not really of, it's created a new kind of shitty reporting. But you're saying it hasn't really damaged, you know, serious reports. So you know it's not it's not fucking up, you know, coverage of Yemen, right? Or or is that what you're sort of getting at? Well, I mean firstly I think a lot of people would say it is in many ways it is opening up and improving and, and certainly you did get a you did get a phase. People are very down on it all now, including me, but you did get a phase when the internet in general, and even social media specifically, was was clearly seen to be doing to be to be opening up channels of information, letting people communicate from the middle of crowds in the like Arab the Arab Spring crowd. reporting and stuff yeah, like that. You're talking about, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's a sort of slightly more technical thing to do with records and investigative stuff that involves online uh, databases and, and stuff that, that that is real. And you know, even. Uh, I mean, actually, I went back and looked both the Covington and the Jesse Smollett stories, which I think you were holding up as examples where the New York Times had sort of um, taken its cue from Twitter or social media about what had really happened. I, I'm not going to try to defend them completely, but in both those cases... Oh, please, please do. If I'm being unfair, please. No, I'm well, sorry. I mean, in both those cases, firstly, well, firstly, I think if, if it... If the understanding now about the Jesse Smollett thing is that it was a hoax, I'm not quite sure what the final ruling has been. But but um, newspapers have always been really badly set. They're not designed to be able to detect like deliberate hoaxing. Lots of people seem to think they are, but I mean, you know, really, I don't really, I don't, don't really think, feel don't think like even a minimal a minimum amount of, of of investigative reporting would have revealed that the story was absurd from the beginning. I mean, well, just as far as, I can tell from the, as as far as I can tell from the coverage, and I don't want to like might. And, you know, people should check this if they want to be concerned with total accuracy, because I'm not certain. But I think there was a Chicago Police Department statement in that story that did not say 
you know, he has alleged this thing and we're investigating to see if he's telling the truth, but just said, this is what happened. And in the Covington case also, you had, I think, their school or, or the diocese or something uh, instantly um, responding to what had happened in a, in a way that condemned the boys. So in both these cases, you have this slightly subtler dynamic where other bodies that the New York Times is reporting quite responsibly may themselves be being influenced by by watching what's going on in, in social media. I guess one way of putting this is just that it gets harder to separate off, like, which bits are the, the journalists being misled by the new attention environment, right. and which bits they're, they're being perfectly accurate about a completely weird and distorted attentional yeah, yeah. They're relying on testimony from other institutions that themselves may have been kind of corrupted by this, this too, this, this being too influenced by all the traffic going on the various social media sites. Is what you're saying, right? Right. And then, and then the third layer of this, which we, it's a whole extra thing, but I, I think it's interesting. Is like we, me and you, have to be careful because our perception as critics of this is also shaped by the same social media machines, right? So that, you know, um, the idea that something is a really big, things that you find really troubling that you see happening on social media, like partly the salience of them is massively increased for you because the more you engage with those topics on Twitter, the more you're going to get shown um, that subject matter. So there is this kind of, on every level, the journalists, the agencies involved in any one of these stories but also the people who then come along and say like this is all being distorted it's like everybody's attention is being um is being sort of uh, manipulated in in ways that might be you know out of sync with what with some sort of objective reality whatever that means so you you're not not of the general opinion that that reporting and reporters and, and, and news people in general have just become far more credulous, less skeptical. I mean, I'm thinking, I watched that whole ABC hour-long interview with Jesse Smollett. Right. And I just was stunned at the fact that here you have one of America's three major TV news networks. And this person for an hour completely credulously accepted what was demonstrably on its face, a six-year-old could recognize was a, w- a ridiculous story. The subarctic temperatures in, in Chicago, the middle of the night, the, 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 the guy, you know, calling the police and still having the rope around him. I mean, all this sort of stuff. Are you saying, I, 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 are you saying that in a sense, we're, I, we're getting, I'm getting overly impressed by these crazy cases or that there, that there really hasn't been a deterioration as a result of sort of the, the influx of social media and these things, what, what are you, were you not shocked by that as a journalist? I, I think I just don't know whether an increase in credulousness is quite the right way to due to the political sympathy. In other words, look, if this had been the opposite political valence, Mm-hmm. And it had been some right-wing guy who'd been said he'd been attacked by Obama supporters, right? Mm-hmm. Do you really think that that journalist, that, 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 that the woman on ABC would be having such a sympathetic, credulous interview? In other words, the argument is that, look, we know that journalists overwhelmingly are of a, of, of, of a left-wing political orientation. 
we now have this sort of social media environment where everybody has to signal constantly lest they be cast out of the out of the tribe, right? right. And that um, it, it completely demonstrably affects slants the coverage to where you can have a grown professional woman who's been working in this business for years be made a complete fool of, right? Yeah. Um, um, because of her capture and because of the fact that she's lazy and won't and won't ask any tough questions, right? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what I because I don't. Yes, it's I'm not untroubled by it. I'm trying to figure out why I. Is it something to do with the the claim that you're making here about the change over time? I mean, it implies that there's a kind of the, the way things used to happen was more objective than it is now. I mean, certainly the, the, the specific values have changed. So, so yes, the risk is of credulousness towards things that um, seem like they're part of, they go in the direction of the worldview of progressive politics. But then I always kind of, I don't know, I, I don't disagree, but I always think of like, I think it's Seymour Hirsch who talked about um, his like first day at a, Chicago newspaper in, you know, God knows how, how long ago, um, writing up a long report on a house fire in which uh, various members of the family had died and then taking it to the editor and the editor asking him the race of the family. And when it turned out that they were black, you know, relegating it to a column, uh, you know, one column inch on page 50 or something. And so the question to me, in my mind is, that was a kind of gatekeeping too, right? That was a kind of, um, that was a worldview that um, many, you know, sort of deeply awful worldview being imposed upon reality. Is it, is it worse now? Uh, or is it, has it just changed its polarity? I mean, yeah, I, yeah, that's fair enough. I, I, think I, do think, I mean, where I do, where I thought you were going with that question is that I do think that like salience, is a is a big issue here. Journalists being addicted to Twitter gives a sense that the kind of things that Twitter is interested in uh, matter to the world at large, and their user base for Twitter is so hilariously tiny as a population, certainly like the world's population. Yeah. Um, and but that doesn't mean they're necessarily reporting something false, right? Because they're then creating the. I mean, it, it all it's so recursive. If, if everyone involved in politics and media thinks that something's important, then it kind of becomes important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, I guess what I'm saying then is that the kind of major media organizations reporting things that turn out to be completely false is like, I don't think that's the key issue. I, I'm not disputing that, it's, that it happens and it may be more and that that's bad. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Listen, I, I, I appreciate the point that um, it may just be that the, the credulity born of the sorts of social pressures brought to bear aren't new. They've just changed. It's just which one, which ones they are have changed. I mean, I, I appreciate that point. Um, yeah. And so then it gives us, it gives us an opportunity maybe to, to, to deal with the next issue um, um, uh, in a different way. I mean, it is certainly my, so I, I now am old enough. I'm going to be 51 in September. I'm old enough now to remember, I, I still remember the news, what it was like in the days of, um, uh, you know, in, in the, let's call them the Brink, the David Brinkley days. Okay. okay. Um, 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 the, the Walter Cronkite days, the, um, the, the, and while I certainly think that any, you know, Nixon voter 
in the 70s would have complained that the New York Times was biased, let's say, right? I don't think that they would have mistrusted its news pages in the same way that they do now. In other words, there is a perception today, and I think this is on both sides uh, of the political divide, share this perception just in the opposite direction. Yeah, that 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 new that all the news organs are essentially partisan now. Um, um, that they, that they're all in a sense organs of a party. Um, and um, I'm wondering what, in light of what we've been saying and the complications that you've been introducing, um, what do you think is the reason for this this changed perception? If not that the news itself has indeed changed, um, or do you think that there is not a greater impression? Do you think that? The Nixon voter in 1973 which thought the New York Times was just as partisan as it is. Uh, they do now to the point to where they don't even trust its news reporting, right? Or do you think you agree with me that something has indeed changed, but maybe the reason for it is not what I thought it was? My sense is that something has changed. Um, and I do think that in certain subtle ways, it is an increase in partisanship of uh, – the news organs. I, like, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm. I'm. The stuff I'm pushing back on you against is is not. It's not really because I think that um, nothing's changed. It's. It's just I find it really difficult to sort of nail exactly what's changed, and I'm not sure that uh, sort of specific stories that turn out to have very little to do with reality are the best example of what of what's changed. Um, I guess. The, the really important, the sort of top level point that this makes me think about is just that um, it's clear from spending any time on social media that that the logic of the attention economy favours uh, sort of tr- tribalism. It favours people. Uh, people want to read stuff that that reaffirms their their beliefs. They want to. Um, uh, there, there, there's not a lot, it's not very interesting sort of, there's not a lot of attention to be got in reading something difficult that makes you genuinely question something that you believe. So there's definitely, definitely, um, it's been there on the opinion pages for a long time, a huge pressure on traditional news organizations to do what everyone else is doing in this space, which is to, excuse me, which is to reaffirm people's existing views and to, and to preach to the choir. Um, and I think you do see that that spreads out of the, I think there's been a, totally, there's been a, a sort of uh, blurring of the firewall between opinion and and news. How far the news that was there before was really coldly neutral and objective, as opposed to just kind of centrist and establishmentarian is a, is a different question. But like, there's definitely been that kind of, um, that kind of relaxation in the difference. And the thing I always think about is like, you know, I'm assuming that in very high-minded newspapers in the 19th century or something, the very idea that your editorial decisions would involve questions about what sort of things people wanted to read about would have been kind of anathema, right? Because your job was to tell people what they yeah. uh, needed to think about. It wasn't under the current business model. I mean, and that was, yeah, that was a, that's an opportunity to, that there are all sorts of ways that is a kind of ideological opportunity to not to, to sort of mislead people in certain ways. But but the opposite is the one where you're just constantly chasing after 
their attention and um and then it's become um entirely about that one way that it's put very well it might be by tim Wu in that book is that you know there's traditionally been this firewall between advertisers and um advertising and editorial and newspapers and i think it remains very strong in many newspapers people started to get worried about like sponsored content where specific um companies would pay for certain kinds of uh quasi journalism that would be appear but the really interesting thing is the way that the ethic of advertising spreads to all the to, to the whole of um the media right because the because advertisers have always just been in the business of getting getting eyeballs um and and i think that is now you know, it would be crazy these days to think that you wouldn't have any thought given to how popular a piece could be before you considered whether to run it or not. Nobody would, you would be, you know, that just seems crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I also don't want to pretend that, I mean, we know, I mean, I think I knew this already by middle school, right, that um, historically speaking, I mean, there have been periods well before when journalism, when, when journalism was completely polit- politicized and partisan and quite nasty and, and yeah, 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 totally. so I don't want to, I don't want to pretend, you know, that this is somehow unprecedented. I'm really focusing on, you know, journalism since the second world war, let's say. Um, and, um, and, um, and just the sort of the perception, I'm wondering whether it's not so much that it was objective before and now it's not, but that at least a certain pretense of a certain kind of professionalism has been abandoned is what it seems to me. Um, um, to where now there's a kind of an unashamed kind of uh, 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 ideological quality to what newspapers are, are doing that at least perhaps before recognizing that there at least was a certain responsibility to try at least give the impression that one was being professional. And, you know, I, I just, so while we were talking, I just Googled, right. Um, the, uh, the, um, to see what came up, right. Um, the, um, the latest uh, absurd, ridiculous remarks by the, in my view, uh, extremely not bright Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, uh, uh, with respect to her, you know, embracing the comparison of herself with, with Eva Perón, right? Um, um, you know, this is, you know, this is a sort of a deeply embarrassing, humiliating sort of gaffe to make for someone who's so sort of, you know, public, uh, and who's so much in the public eye. You Google it. And the only people who are talking about it are, are right-wing papers. You know, you look at the first page that comes up on Google. It's the Washington Examiner. It's Town Hall. It's all it's Breitbart. It's all this sort of stuff. Um, but you can guarantee that when Trump says something embarrassingly stupid and, and ridiculous, um, if I did the same Google search, the page that would come up immediately would be all, you know, would be sort of, you know, uh, in addition to, you know, p- partisan outlets like Vox and stuff, would be the New York Times and the Washington Post and sort of all of that and 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 so I just I just wonder whether you think maybe it's not a so much a issue of partisanship and objectivity as opposed to one of simply of sort of professionalism. I don't know. I I, I we um, love it. We we may love AOC, but when she acts like an imbecile, we have to report on it. We can't just pretend it didn't happen, right? I mean, I'm really struck by her social media game because she does seem to have, and I think it's presumably a fair amount of it is deliberate, uh, the ability to wind up that um, that constituency of the sort of overtly partisan uh, 
right-wing political sites in a way that is um, can be extremely entertaining to watch. Um, and I'm sure that a New York Times journalist who who decided to cover the president saying something outrageous would would make the point that he's the that he's the president. Um, I I think that I think the point is that there's there's this undeniably this kind of overall. I'm going to talk in like blind forces again for a moment rather than individual people. But like I I feel like there is overwhelmingly this pressure towards partisanship and it's operate and operates on everybody who wants to stay afloat in the media uh, universe. I think I probably disagree with you that, you know, if, if this is what you're saying, that places like New York Times and Washington Post are like are like a blink of an eye away from being like the Washington Examiner. I think that but nobody's immune to those pressures. I think that you then also get with place with kind of established papers you get you get a real brand investment in in telling the truth like it it there's a financial reasons for the new york times to continue like if they if mitch mcconnell says something if they say mitch mcconnell said something like you can be pretty sure that he said it and and they need that to be the case right i mean it's no it's um at the real bottom of kind of just appalling uh partisan Websites. There's no reason to believe that a quote from somebody is a is a real quote, but that matters to the Times not just for high-minded reasons, but because you know its its existence in the ecosystem. One of the one of its selling points is that that's going to be that that's going to be true. I think the way that that pressure that that comes to bear on everybody comes to bear on the sort of legacy media as they're sometimes obnoxiously called is is in the choice of yeah it's in the choice of topics it's in how much prominence you give to certain issues so that you can you know the, the times especially seems to be very seems to be very sort of left on all sorts of cultural issues but not very left to me to my eyes on kind of economic ones and so you get kind of yeah it's pretty neoliberal probably you know like most of them are right i mean it's sort of right so you know and then it's to do with then it comes like i can i i suspect it is the case that a certain kind of um semi-mythical person who i conjure in my mind as a as a trump voter in the u.s south would feel more like um leafing through the sunday new york times would feel more like this was a life that they had nothing to do with than their equivalent would have would have done a few decades ago, if so, possibly just because we were all much more deferential then and didn't expect the lives of, in newspapers to be our lives. I don't know. But. You, th- you think it's because we've changed, not because, in other words, if it's true, and obviously, you know, this is a, this is a, a guess, but if it's the case that, you know, you, the, the loyal Nixon voter in 1970, you know, 1970, despite thinking that the media was biased, was more inclined to accept the straight reporting uh, in the New York Times or, or as given by Walter Cronkite on, on CBS News. Um, the reason why they're, that, that, that the Trump counterpart today is less likely to is not because the papers changed, but because the people have changed. Is that, is that your suggestion? I, I think I'm just, I mean, <laughs> this, is where, this is where I reveal what I was saying about lacking the precision of thought to be a philosopher. But I think that, I think that, you're talking about 
a, a kind of something that affects everybody. That that that, that this that the the influence of the way that attention works is something that has changed what I mean. And there are lots of other things going on apart from changes in the monetization of attention. But these kind of forces. They act on individual people. They act on journalists. They act on newspapers. They act on people who want to, um, who have sort of vested interests in uh, reducing trust in in newspapers. Um, you know, when Trump says these kind of really appalling uh, things that are sort of calculated to undermine faith in the media, I think it's simultaneously true that he's talking nonsense and that he's making stuff up. But that he's not—it's not something that comes from nowhere, you know. It's not something that has no backup in the changes in the media. Otherwise, it wouldn't get off the ground as a persuasive kind of kind of lie. So um, I, I don't know. I just think I'm really reluctant to say that one constituency in all of this, when we're all marinating in this in this digital environment, that, that one—I mean, you could certainly say that one constituency has a greater obligation that that that. Um, our whole job as journalists should be to try to um, uh, resist this more than more than we are doing. But I just think it just like it's systemic. Yeah. And so and, you know, you're right. You're right in that something that exists now that did not exist in 1970 is an entire ecosystem devoted to making people not trust the news, right? right. <laughs> you know, and you know, you in the old days, you know, you would have had, you know, a Brent Brozell, let's say, running around sort of, you know, you know, doing his media research or whatever. And you might have read it in that, you know, what what he found in National Review or something like that. And that might have, you know, ginned you up a little bit against the New York Times reporting. But what you have now, I mean like I said, is an entire ecosystem whose job is to do this. And now you have a president who's sort of you know, right. um, but you know, I, th- that's the reason why, you know, the reason why I keep sort of wondering is because, I mean, you did have, I mean, you're back in the days of Nixon, you know, Nixon was fighting the media a lot. I mean, you know, Spiro Agnew's famous nattering nabobs of negativity. Um, and, uh, but I guess what's different is that those complaints and that sort of um, politics didn't have this enormous infra- online infrastructure to sort of amplify it and promote it and sort of, you know. And so, yeah, the president, Nixon, might have complained about the the, the new reporters, but that was it, right? <laughs> now yeah. the right. president complains over the reporters and this huge juggernaut machine that tr- blasted out like the loudspeakers all over the Internet, I guess, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just think this kind of, I know I sound a bit like a stat record, but the... But the idea of optimizing for attention is just this kind of universal solvent. Yeah. It just kind of, uh, if it doesn't affect the existing news organs, it will bring into existence uh, new ones to do that. You know, so eventually the whole and the and you know, I think in many ways, Trump is a pure creation of that kind of oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. of that kind of ecosystem where, like, I can't remember who said this, but um, somebody on some podcast I was listening to, he would have. He might have performed less well in the 2016 election if he had been less bad, because um, that he was able to um, he was able to stop scandals sticking to him partly by replacing them with new scandals every 24 to 48 hours. And in many ways, you know, the, the idea that Hillary Clinton had one arguably properly bad. 
kind of political scandal type thing attaching to her was much more damaging precisely because there wasn't that same overload of bandwidth. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I I think that that's right. Um, 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 And it certainly does. It does. It, 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 let's put it this way. It's an alternate explanation for the same phenomena. And and I think it's a good one. Um, um, And, but then it sort of, then, then it leads me to, to wonder, we agree that the media is at least perceived as being partisan, more, more like more perceived as being partisan and, and captured than it used to be, which means that the public is less inclined to trust the straight news coming out of these organs. I think we probably agree that that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually think it's very dangerous. Um, um, if we can't, you know, the, the, if, if we can't even across a partisan divide, agree upon a base set of sort of facts, mm-hmm. I don't see how we can self govern. Right. I, I don't see right. how that becomes possible. Um, right. And so I think we, it sounds like we agree that all of that is, 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 is a problem and perhaps even a very serious one. But now the question is, is that something that the news organs can fix? I mean, I mean, how, how, how do the news organs regain the trust of the people who now perceive them as all being partisan outlets, um, as opposed to us all retreating into our enclaves, having our own set of facts, which means then that when we, we come back together in the polis and try to govern, um, we can't, right? All we can do is sort of fight, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, can the news organs do anything about this or is the problem no longer something that they can do anything about? Yeah. I mean, I, if I had the answer, I thought a, a greater commitment to a, a prof- professionalism is the answer. A sort of a very public and demonstrable and transparent kind of a professionalism. Because I wonder whether the editorial uh, uh, layers are are up to snuff anymore. A lot of the stuff that's getting through strikes me would not have made it through the editorial board of the New York Times in 1970, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think some, quite a few, um, I'm sure that a lot of people inside the Times would, would obviously, uh, in their own self-defense, want to say that they are exhibiting that professionalism. The interesting thing about that is not that, that they would say that, but that, you know, the Times is regularly subjected to a lot of criticism uh, not of the kind you're giving it here, but of the kind that says, like, you know, why are you reporting uh, some sentences that Trump said in quotes without pointing out that every single fact in those sentences is almost certainly false? Um, why are you sort of, why are you acting like, you know, um, there's a kind of, you need to hear from both sides of a debate that actually, you know, it's 10% of, Americans at most actually actually hold one side and it's eighty percent the other. So obviously splitting the difference is not the same as as being professional, but I do think that um in some ways it may be that there is a bulwark that exists there. That that that, that there are lots of things that um you know there are lots of things that the Times would not do, organ you know newspapers and outlets like the Times wouldn't do if they were just completely uh, as com- as completely craven for for clicks as as their critics sometimes suggest, and many of those things they do get them all sorts of criticism from the other side. I mean, 
Uh, one of the ways I found really useful to think about, I think it was Timothy Snyder probably has written about this, that, you know, the historian writes about fascism, but I've seen it elsewhere as well, which is, and I don't think it's particularly connected to the kind of, is this the 1930s again question, which is a whole a separate argument, but just this idea that, um, you know, all the hippies who invented or developed the internet after the military invented it, um, were convinced that it was going to expand the public sphere in a kind of incredibly fruitful way because all sorts of people would would be able to belong to the public debate in a way that they hadn't before. And I think that did happen for a few years. Um, now what you see is that it sort of, it, it kind of um, dissolves the public sphere because it just connects everybody's ids to everybody else's ids. You know, it's like there's no, there's no space uh that there's nothing i mean it, it's not a place to have sort of cool and uh uh that that kind of discussion that you need to make political decisions because it's everybody's like deepest most visceral emotions uh in a spiral with everyone else's um and now on the one hand what can a newspaper do about that if it want even if it wants to because to stay afloat it has to um it has to join that spiral. On the other hand, I think you do see signs here and there of people in the media really understanding that that model is a race to the bottom and a race to destruction. I think even the Times' metered paywall has been an amazing success compared to what people uh, predicted. The Guardian is doing this kind of uh, slightly NPR-esque stuff to do with membership and, and uh, donations. Um, there are a bunch of other kind of experimental model. Anyway, I think there is at some point, and I think it's already happened in many ways, and it probably explains the continued flourishing of some older outlets. The whole thing is so chaotic and awful that you, that there's a real hunger for, um, for the stuff that you can, that you can rely on, uh, even if it challenges your, your viewpoints. I think that social media is always going to be a terrible place to get a sense of that because there's, I'm not aware of any success stories in the attempts to like reinvent social media along these, along these lines. So I guess it's just an argument about degree, isn't it? I mean, um, yeah. Should the times go even further in this direction? Absolutely. But it may well be that we can't do, we sort of lose sight about how far they already do go compared to what the, the sort of business incentives. Yeah. On them. Yeah. So you're not inclined to think that the issue is one that could be at least somewhat helped by greater professionalism or, or, or tougher editorial uh, barriers to publication um, because you're not, you're not under the impression that those really have declined very much since let's say no, I, 1970 or. No, I'm trying to think why I, I find it very difficult to express what I'm trying to say because I don't know. I don't want to be the kind of everything's fine. Uh, nothing's changed. Oh, no, I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just trying to see if the problem is sort of lying somewhere else. You know what I mean? And so, so the problem right. with the papers is the effect, not the cause. Right. Right. I think that, um, this media environment has affected and changed everybody, everyone operating in it. And, uh, in lots of ways for the worse. Um, it, and I think, yeah, I think, Absolutely, the Times could make different decisions tomorrow that would that would um, be less yeah. uh, that would be made less in line with the sort of attention maximizing um, incentive. 
But I just want to say they already are making a huge ton of decisions every day that, that oppose that sort of simplest interpretation of their business model. I mean, the w- one way to think about it, as opposed to, to sort of use a deliberately extreme example, is like, why is any news outlet not just a porn site? I mean, if, if literally all you wanted to do was to... Um, Some might say that they are, right? It's just so- <laughs> I mean, you know, if you literally cared about nothing, but getting as many people to click on your site, then it would either be that or it might be, you know, cat videos or something. But it's not going to be... Um, and, and again, you know, when we come to this topic and try to analyse it, we're both also having our attention totally manipulated by what comes up top in our Twitter feed. And actually, right. the, day yeah. the Times publishes any story that makes you concerned for the future of journalism. It, it, it prints another, like, 300 stories that neither right. of us... Right. Uh, Right, we're not talking about the, the reporting in the metro section on the water main break on Third Avenue, like you know, which is right. which there's literally hundreds of such sort of you know, to get this yeah. misimpression. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, um, you know, I've often with people sort of wringing their hands about Trump, <clears throat> I've often said that in my view, Trump is exactly the president we ought to have um, <laughs> um, because he's what he's what we asked for, right? Um, in, other, in other words, you should always get what you ask for. And it seems to me that, you know, the, the kind, if you look at Trump, I just see us, right, is what I see. Right. Um, the vulgarity, the increase, you know, the, 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 bru- the brutal sort of stupidity, the, um, the, 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 the knee jerk kind of reactionism. Um, I just see us reflected in him. And I'm starting to wonder whether, you know, we're getting the news. We're getting the newspapers we asked for, also, right? I mean, um, because look, I mean, I don't believe that we are more divided than we were in 1968. And I, I, I think it's demonstrable that we weren't, that we're not, right? Oh, um, interesting. Okay. Uh, 19, come on, you had actual massive riots. I mean, cities on fire, right? I mean, right, right. I mean, you had political assassinations, right? I mean, you yeah, had, yeah, right. And I mean, what is it like? You had Black Panthers taking over like you know, buildings. I mean, I, I don't believe we're as divided as we were then, but everybody is convinced that we're way, way more divided. And it's almost like we're, we're trying to create this reality. I, I just, what I don't understand is why it's something anybody would want. Right. I mean, um, um, I find puzzling if I agree with you that in a sense, the problem is us and not the institutions. I guess then I'm at a loss as to why the hell we want, you know, wasn't, wasn't 1968 bad enough? I mean, why do we want it to be worse than 1968? I mean, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I just wonder, I mean, it's more of a question, but I feel like it connects a little bit to your, um, your earlier conversations about sort of uh, morality everywhere um, stuff, because um, the way in which we seem to be divided now is in, terms of camps deeply committed to certain kind of moral positions. Um, whereas I think to the extent that what you're talking about in the sixties, certainly in historical, in, in historical perspective, obviously it's all very moral, the kind of uh, being motivated for, by racial justice and everything, but that's, but there's something very material about that, right? I mean, that's to do with people being like, and, and, and or being shipped off to Vietnam or whatever. I mean, right, right, right. And you know, obviously we live in a world today where there are plenty of people, including in America, who are just as materially or, or do face lots of material 
uh, things worth getting angry about. But it does seem that a lot of the things that seem to splinter, I mean, I'm thinking especially about sort of intra left wing splinterings. Yeah. Um, it does seem like, and I think that's partly again, just to make my same point, but, but like it just turns out that, that, that kind of moral group boundary policing kind of thing is much more like that really gets people going and it gets them to spend three hours on Facebook instead of, instead of two minutes. Um, and then of course, it's not just that it wastes time, but that it determines your whole sense of what, like what reality is and how many people are like against you. And, um, and it, and it causes, I think, the, I think part of this is, um, you know, just this idea of like, we might not be more divided than we were, but I feel like we are relating to each other much more solely as kind of avatars of our politics than we. Well, the word avatar there is very key, right? I mean, I, I, I think the net result of the whole online world is going to wind up having been terrible. Um, <laughs> well, no, because I'm no, thinking, I, don't, I don't disagree. I don't, I don't disagree. I'm thinking more and more about just how much of what we're talking about is because of the fact that more and more of our lives are spent online to the point to which we are beginning to view reality more and more as virtual as virtual. Mm-hmm. And we're beginning to view ourselves and others more and more as their avatars. Right. Right. Um, and, um, and so there's a kind of a, a there's a fictionalization that occurs. Mm-hmm. And there's also a kind of a, um, a, um, uh, how should I do it? An archetyping that occurs where, where, where now you're not talking to another person. You're talking to an archetype, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm talking to the guy who's got, you know, 15 rainbow flags and unicorns and shit all next to his name. Yeah. I'm talking to that. Right. To, whereas if I was talking to him, you know, standing on the street. Right. I bet you the conversation would be entirely different. Right. And so I, mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether, the impression that we're more divided than we were is because we've created a world in which we are, right? But yeah, the, no, yeah. the we is not us. The we is our avatars, right? Yeah. The world is not the world. The world is this online space we've created. I, <laughs> I, I, think, I think there's probably lots of truth in that. I mean, I think it goes both ways, right? I think on the one hand, we've sort of leapt into virtuality and and then, you know, you can completely curate who you are on, online. Right. Um, and then there's also this kind of, uh, one thing we haven't really touched on, I guess yet is I feel like this, the whole sort of attentional arms race thing, it creates this kind of, well, arms race, I guess. Yeah. It creates this kind of upping the ante so that to be distinctively um, who you are online requires more and more at, at the same time as it's all to do with tribal belonging. It, it's also to do with like, being distinctive from the the crowd, and so because you uh, because the payment is in attention, so you know I'm uh, I'm as critical as, of uh, Trump as anyone uh, I know, but there is a kind of this kind of phenomenon of kind of hashtag resistance figures on Twitter who just can't be helping <laughs> in the long run yeah. because. That what they're actually doing, and I'm not saying they even do it consciously, or that they're not, you know, their veins aren't full of righteousness as they do it, probably are, which is part of the problem. But what they're really doing is trying to 
um, rise above the the, the babble of uh, of uh, and, and be sort of clarion voices. And you can do that with sort of eight thousand uh, tweet threads, getting all sort of conspiracy minded about things. Or you can do it by the sort of sheer. Um, I, I think this is a problem, right? And it definitely comes down. De- definitely comes up with these sort of comparisons to. Europe in the 1930s and stuff. It's like, however bad things actually genuinely are, there is a dynamic on Twitter and elsewhere such that we will reach the conclusion that they're even worse. Like, right. <laughs> the moment you say that in lots of circles, people will accuse you of saying that they're not really bad. But I'm just saying they can't be as bad as the worst that people think they are at any right. time, like almost right. by definition. Right, and, and I, you know, that's that 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 speaks directly to something that I've been sort of banging on about a little bit, and that is that you know, is the 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 the, the pitch of contemporary activism strikes me as completely out of sync with the actual material realities on the ground. In other words, the activism now is louder than it was back in the '60s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 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 but the problems aren't worse now than they were in the '60s. The problems for women aren't worse now than they were in the '60s. The problems for, for for black people are not worse than they were in the '60s. Yet you would think they were by the volume and the intensity uh, and and the, and the absolute to sheer brutality of the activist uh, of of the activists' activity, right? And um, and I think it makes a lot of sense to suggest that this is partly because the environment in which the activism is occurring is one in which there is so much noise um, that one has to uh, scream ten times more loudly just in order to sort of you know even be noticed or to stand out. Um, 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 I, I think that 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 that's an interesting. It's other. I mean, it's other things too that are sort of related, isn't it? Because it's like you know. Um, it is the fact that lots of terrible things might be happening of a racist or sexist variety that you just wouldn't have heard about um, in um, the pre-internet era because they happened in some town somewhere and the, the, the news would just never spread. Um, or, you know, uh, people filming police misconduct on their cell phones um, that, you know, some people always knew was happening, but the rest of us, the rest of us didn't. There's also, I don't know if this is totally connected, but I'm really struck by it. I think it's Stephen Pinker. This comes from Stephen Pinker originally, but um, this idea that 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 um, sort of moral progress doesn't, and he's obviously a very big believer in moral progress, but that it doesn't keep pace with norms so that we're constantly, that the expectations we have for a just society are constantly drifting higher than than society can can keep up with. Um, and the example that he gives, you know, obviously in medieval times, torture was just a fundamental aspect of the, of how people, of how justice was, was, uh, was dealt with completely normal, uh, occurrence. Um, we're, we're scandalized when we hear about allegations of CIA torture, for example, and on one level we should be, but on the other level, like on another level, we're only scandalized by it because we now think that it should be, we now all agree on some level that torture has no role in the world. So, I, and I feel like maybe the internet, one of the things it does is it kind of accelerates this, this drift of, uh, of, of expectation so that everything that is not yet there feels. Uh, in that sense, then it's continuous. Well, it sounds to me like what you're suggesting suggests that the, 
the internet effect is continuous with what decades ago would have been people would have argued was the television effect right in other words you know one of the things about about the vietnam war that was that was very uh, important was that it was the first war which was sort of televised in real time right mm -hmm. and so a lot of the intensity of the reaction to that war it's not that we didn't behave as bad or worse in wars before i mean jesus right. in world war ii we nuked two cities for god's sake right, right. i mean i mean I'm sorry. I mean, we did worse in one day in, in, in World War II than we did in the entirety of the Vietnam War, right? Um, 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 but the difference is that you didn't see it right in front of you. I mean, you might see it three weeks later in a newsreel at a movie theater that was heavily edited and was essentially propaganda. Right. What you wouldn't have seen. And in that sense, you know, you could say that then the, the intensity of the, re, the, the reaction, let's call it the activist reaction, it wasn't due to the fact that the Vietnam War was any worse, right? Um, but merely that you were seeing it in, in a way that, that you couldn't have seen it before. Yeah. And what you're saying now is that, <coughs> excuse me, my allergies are just terrible. Um, but you're essentially saying that is that the, the internet effect is the same kind of effect. It's just on steroids, right? It's because of the... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like, I think you're totally right about everything you said there. And obviously one one... One interpretation of that would be that, like, actually, the world is totally fine and not and not a bad place. And then the other interpretation would be like, it's good that we find out about these things. And if and if living in a situation of knowing more about them is is distressing, then that's just the price of being aware of how far we have to go as a as a species. So that you know, I would rather know about the Vietnam War than 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 not. It does feel like there's some kind of threshold you reach with social media network and platforms that have these huge user bases where um, I do want to hear about things that I would previously not have heard about and I don't want to be deceived about how bad the world remains. Um, but at some point it just feels like my feed is, there's always, you know, and in the absence of the perfect society, Twitter is always going to be able to build a feed that makes me think everything is absolutely terrible. And there's something that's gone wrong there if I can't, um, if the system is going to sort of deny us any, deny the possibility of, of feeling that progress has been made. You don't want to assume progress is being made, but you don't want to be incapable of, uh, of, uh, perceiving it. And then, you know, yeah, you get, sorry, go on. But it, it's, it's, it does highlight, though, the danger of the perception that the straight reporting is all tainted, right? Because, look, I mean, what ideally should happen is, as the information, as the communications advance, as the information advances to where now you can see in real time what's going on in Vietnam or what's going on, let's mm -hmm. say now, um, 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 in some police uh, encounter, yeah. Um, what should happen is that you should keep have to keep reminding yourself, okay, this doesn't mean that things have actually gotten worse. This simply means that we're now more able to see what's going on. But given that we have these, these facts, right, that we got from the straight reporting, we know that materially women, minorities, et cetera, are significantly better off than they were in 1968. And so our reaction should be according, right? In other, in other, in other words, right. we shouldn't be acting 
we shouldn't be reacting more extremely than we would have, would have reacted with 68 because the problems are not worse. They're better. Um, but that's corrective is not happening because no one now trusts the facts, right? No, no one. And so you actually have people telling you that things are worse, right? I mean, I will, I will have feminists look me in the face and tell me that things are much worse. Now that to me is just demonstrably untrue. I mean, I can remember when the only women in offices were secretaries. Mm-hmm. And by now I've had more women bosses than I've had male ones. Right. right, right. So, so, I mean, yeah. it's demonstrably false, but if we've gotten to the point to where no one trusts the sources of information anymore, then we are all living in a sense in a world of, of, of facts manufactured by our own camps. You see, I, yeah, that's, I think that's where I probably do diverge because I don't think that uh, I don't think that the problem that you're talking about there comes from. I mean, are you suggesting that the problem comes from from false stories about things happening to women or minorities? It comes from if if we agree for the sake of argument, no, it's no, a problem. The problem comes from um, true stories being more accessible than in a time when previously all sorts of terrible things were happening and you never... Well, it's uh, a combination. I think one is what you just said, but the other is that because we don't... Tr- we, we now view all the organs as mm. political as political arms, um, we're more inclined to simply seek out the facts from our own partisan media. Right, right. Um, and in fact, it's very difficult to avoid that if you're accessing it through any kind of social system that is designed to, that's the other thing. I mean, it's like if you, um, if you're very exercised by some issue on Twitter, you'll, you'll start seeing, you'll start getting the sense that it's a really widespread issue because of the way Twitter works. So it's not even a, it's not even a decision in, um, in, in that case. It's just the way that, it's just the way that your sources of information have been there. I mean, I don't know what the answer is here apart from extremely large scale and, draconian regulation of uh, of social networks, which certainly does get talked about more than it used to. So. Yeah. Do you have time for one more yes. question? Um, um, what we're talking about, in part, to a certain extent, is a kind of atomization, right? Um, I, I'm talking about, I like to describe sort of, you know, the a la carte, we're, we're now in the full-blown a la carte model, Right. Um, uh, both in terms of how we acquire our information and also in terms of how we consume our entertainment. And I actually, yeah. I, when you and I spoke informally last time, I sort of made a lot of hay out of this. This is one of my hobby horses. Um, why, for example, I thought television was better in the 70s than it is now. And Arya Cohen-Wade had an almost, almost had an aneurysm when I told him this. <laughs> but I simply pointed out that, you know, the number of people that watched the last episode of MASH um, that many, you know, you could take the, the three top HBO hotshot shows and you put the audiences combined would not even come close, right? Yeah. Um, and um, I said that one of the consequences of of the a la carte model um, um, by which we acquire entertainment is that we no longer we no longer inhabit a shared culture anymore. Mm-hmm. We we exist in cultural enclaves. Um, there, there, there really is no longer a sort of a, a public square. There really is no longer, um, 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 and I'm, and, and I'm starting to think that the new, with the, the problem with the news is the same problem, and that when you put the two together, 
what you're essentially describing are the conditions for the disintegration of the country, right? Um, um, at least into enclaves. This whole red state, blue state, I mean, all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. just strikes me as, 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 as a product of, of this, a la, this rendering a la carte of all the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, all the, both the entertainment and the news we consume. Do you have any feelings about this or thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, I think I I agree. I think um, it, it it's also not it's it's almost worse than that in a way, in the sense that um, a la carte implies that you know we each have fairly fixed tastes and preferences, and then we can go out and get them met. And I think part of the big problem of the way that stuff reaches us now digitally through social. Uh, networks is that it actually works on your preferences and tastes as well so that it actually you know you get more extreme or you need to be more distinctive uh, and whatever it might be so there's a kind of it's a it's a vicious spiral as well as um, as well as just a kind of um, going off into different groups and I think I mentioned when we spoke before the work that's really impressed me recently by Robert Talese the political philosopher at Vanderbilt University who points out that, you know, it may be that what we need to do for the health of the democracy is not um, to uh, try and sort of seek out people who disagree with us and have good political conversations with them until we reach uh, some middle ground, but but just pursue many more forms of social life that are just nothing to do with with politics. And that's really hard to do not least because of geographical sorting. Like if I, it's not impossible for me here in Brooklyn to go and hang out in a group of people where I have no idea, couldn't couldn't predict their voting preferences. I could go to bits of Staten Island probably and maybe it would be harder to tell. Although actually there it would just be the opposite. I could predict their Republican. I mean, in, it's, it's, it's geographically difficult to pursue life in a way that isn't, for me, here, I don't know where about, about where you are, but um, to just sort of belong to societies and uh, other forms of social life where politics just isn't yeah. isn't on the agenda, and and you have no idea who you're who what you're relating to people not as political avatars. I mean, I it sounds like a great great thing to do. I don't know whether it's practical anymore because of how we've sorted ourselves out. Yeah, there was an article in the Times that. This is around the time after Trump won, and the article is something to the effect of: if, if, if you if you don't want Trumps, then hipsters have got to have, have got to move to the Midwest, right? I mean, um, right. Um, um, if you're all going to cluster in three places around the country, right? In an electoral system, you're going to lose every election, right? It doesn't matter how many of you there are, right? Um, right. Um, and this seems to be a point that I just, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm a, I'm a liberal, I vote Democrat. This is just something I seem not to be able to get into the skull of the people on my side. Mm-hmm. I'll keep screaming and yelling about, you know, how there's how much more of us there are and Trump didn't really win and all of that. And it's sort of like, you know, it's irrelevant, man. You know, if, if you only live in LA, New York and, and you know, Seattle, um, you're not going to win any elections. And, um, um, but, but this speaks to the sort of the, you know, I think that this sort of speaks to the a la cartizing of, mm-hmm. um, 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 because, because it's mirrored in now the geography, right, in a way that um, 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 is, is a bit, but Shaggy, I mean, the reason that I've somewhat avoided it is because, A, 
I'm old enough that my formative years were spent prior to this a la carte system, right? right. And so um, I was, you know, I was formed out of, uh, in a society that very much still did have a national culture, right? A mm-hmm. national, you know, um, 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 you know, MTV was national, international. Yeah. It was not regional. It was not, um, but also because I grew up in very liberal New York, but now I live in the most right-wing part of the country. <laughs> right. I was really wondering about that because academ- academia sort of does this, doesn't it? It kind of takes people and plops them down in, in right. culture where there's no particular reason to expect you to feel right. like. So being here, you know, when Hillary Clinton starts talking about the deplorables, I look around and I'm like, she means all these people that live in my neighborhood. Right. And that really is not a good characterization. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, they, they, they have a million faults and virtues and they're all over the map. And, and, uh, but you're right in the sense that we can't sort of forcibly relocate people to sort of popul- pop pepper them all over the country. And we also probably can't reverse the a la carteizing of entertainment and news. And so it seems to me like the sort of, this sort of great sort of disintegration is unstoppable or at least it's inevitable. Right. I mean, um, I mean, it doesn't. It, it doesn't seem like there's an obvious. Um, uh, there certainly isn't an obvious solution. I mean, I think you read and you encounter all sorts of stories about people sort of turning local in their political interests and in their life in general. The idea of um, the, the related to what I was saying before, you know, people trying to just sort of weave community where they find themselves in a way that is not to do with transformative national and international political change. But I mean, you know, that's not really a solution, right? That's just a sort of, yeah. it's a, it's a decision to have a different set of goals. For your, Let me ask you a bit about the last thing I'm going to ask you on along these lines about the UK. So, um, it seems the a la carteization is not avoidable because of the business model, right? So, and how do you get out of the business model? You know, people have to make money and they're going does something like the BBC at least work against these atomizing trends because it is not subject to the business model or is it also, has it become subject to the business model because of the tertiary relations that it has? I think it's a, I think it's a bulwark. I think the license fee, which is a kind of something you would never start from now, if you were trying to set this up, the idea of making it compulsory that everyone has a TV, has to pay money to, the broadcaster is just kind of hilarious when you um, when you state it for what it is. Um, I think they're definitely subject to a lot of the same pressures. They are um, constantly being accused of being hugely political, kind of in both directions. The way I the way I pick up on it. So maybe that's that, that's usually a good sign, though. Yeah, right. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't I don't I don't see enough of the day to day news coverage to really make a to make a judgment. I think all of this. And it's the same with things like the Guardian's membership model. Um, all these things are bulwarks against the complete dominance of the kind of forces that we're talking about. And I think the only debate is whether they're enough, whether they can get bigger, whether, um, you know, whether you can survive like that. And I sort of hopefully believe that the market will continue to create um appetites for this right because there comes a point when 
like there's a huge hunger for 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 getting out of this uh, soup. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the BBC is uh, the the BBC is uh, remains a sort of amazingly impressive organisation. But yes, partly because of a of a kind of an anachronistic funding model that uh, I don't yeah. think the British Parliament would never pass today if you... Uh, yeah, and I guess it can only play that role if indeed everybody's watching it, right? I mean, you know, if I guess what I was sort of wondering is whether there's a bit more of a national culture in a place like Britain because they still have something like the BBC, which everybody watches, but if everybody doesn't watch it, then it can't serve that function. <laughs> well, they have, you know, everyone has the same... Uh, social networks to spend time on instead. Uh, I haven't spent enough time in the UK recently to know how to compare the divisions. There certainly are, you know, um, the, the sort of Brexit has been the, the language in which this division is understood now between the metropolitan pro-Remain areas and the northern ex-industrial right. pro-Brexit areas. Um, it's very hard to judge the sort of whether the level of division is 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 different uh, here or there, not least because this place is just so geographically huge. Like you would not expect the United States to hold together in a certain sense, like ever. It certainly, one hopes it would hold together. It's a miracle that's held together this well. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. I I think it was, I think I saw Tyler Cowan or somebody arguing that if you think about, um, if you look at the health of countries as a function of their size, like America is a sort of overwhelmingly, extraordinarily successful, very, very big country compared to the other very, very big countries uh, in terms of human rights and democracy and stuff. It might be terrible compared to uh, the Netherlands on various on various uh, metrics, but, but the Netherlands isn't trying to hold such an enormous uh, yeah. place again. Well, Oliver, I want to thank you very much. This is uh, really interesting and... Um yeah, I, think, I think it's quite important, um, and I do strongly urge everyone to uh, f- to follow Oliver and to read his work, which is really very interesting and good. And, and um, you do do a lot of long form, don't you? I'm glad I'm giving that impression. I think I'm not producing as many of them as I ought to be doing right now, but I, yes, a fair amount. Fair yeah, amount. yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, listen, I hope I hope to I hope to speak with you again and uh, continued success. And, uh, uh, and thank you. Hey, I'd really enjoy that. Thanks very much for asking me to do this. All right. Take care of yourself, Oliver. Thanks. Ciao. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily. So taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.